Hello, and welcome to How's the Water, our occasional podcast about books. And I'm joined as ever by Sienna. Hello there, Sienna, and happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, boo. Was that, were you sneezing or were you trying to scare me? Boo. Oh, uh, yeah, you made me jump. Are you scared? Very, very, very scared. Yeah, I think I might have to go and lie down now. So what do you normally do for Halloween? I don't really do anything for Halloween. (laughs) So nothing. I've never been (laughs) trick-or-treating. I don't put decorations on my house. I don't really, I don't really watch scary films. So I would say recording this special edition of how's the water is probably the most halloweeny thing i've ever done i believe that halloween is quite a big celebration where you're from so what do you do what we normally do actually is carve pumpkins now that i'm an adult i don't trick-or-treat anymore because that would be weird but uh we would normally have pumpkins and make jack-o'-lanterns and we've done that here in jolly england for the last couple of years but we can't find any pumpkins this year i think it might be because of the fuel crisis what's going on it's foiled our plans so we um, are going pumpkinless this year yeah that's a bummer how will you survive will you do anything instead we will be at my in-laws house and we're gonna watch scary movies maybe so we might put halloween on the actual halloween and laugh at it so it's not really going to be all that festive, I'm afraid, this year. But that's what being an adult is like, I suppose. To all you kids out there listening, one day Halloween will not be the most important thing ever. Isn't visiting your in-laws pretty scary? Scary enough. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, God, I hope they don't listen. <laughs> I think I think, I think my mother-in-law listens. And my, my in-laws are not scary. They're both uh, very, very nice. So. Good. Yeah. Neither are mine. They're really not. They're great. Okay. Uh, and then the other thing I should say is that I married someone who is a Christian and they're not big on Halloween Christians. Mm. I don't I don't know how keen they are on it as a celebration. So that kind of prob- probably has an impact on how much we do stuff in our house. The fact that I'm not bothered and my wife doesn't like it <laughs> probably is uh, a big factor in our life. Makes of, it unpopular. Lack of interest. Mm. Yes. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Well, for this Halloween, we're looking at one of my all-time favorite books, and that is Bram Stoker's Dracula. So um, I will ask you, Gary, when did you first come across this quote-unquote obscure (laughs) novel? I think we're picking a very obvious choice to do for Halloween. We are, aren't we? And because it's such a famous book and such a famous character, I don't know, really. I don't remember when I first heard of Dracula. I think it's one of those things that's so much in the cultural consciousness that it's almost like it's always there Mm -hmm. um i do remember probably for christmas actually from my aunt getting like a collection of books as i thought they were books like scary books so in it there were version there was a version of dr jekyll and mr hyde um frankenstein i think Mm. and dracula maybe a couple of other books yeah the hound of the basketballs was in there as well so the first time i read it it was this kind of abridged version in this little collection Mm -hmm. and then i think i read it again as like a young adult so maybe when i was about 18 or 19 something like that how about you Yeah, I first read it when I was in, uh, probably when I was a teenager or something. I've read it a couple times and uh, the third time was for this 
podcast, actually. So I've always really liked it. And I remember um, trying to read it when I was maybe 11 or 12. And then I couldn't get past the first part because I was so scared. Then I put it away until I was a little bit older and then came back to it and um, fought through my fear and discovered that I really, really liked it. I have slightly different feelings reading it so many years on. So we'll talk about that a bit later. (laughs) Yeah, that'll be interesting to get into how it because I think it's one of your favorite books mm-hmm. or, or it was one of your favorite books before mm. you read it this time. So I'd be interested to know how your feelings have changed and whether reading it again has kind of spoiled it for you or just changed your perception of it. Yeah. Well, it is, a. I won't spoil it now, but I do think it's a bit sillier than I remember. Maybe, or maybe just life has gotten so scary and uh, so much has happened over the last couple of years that I'm very jaded. That's that is called growing up, I think, as I said before. <laughs> Shall we get on to Bram Stoker's biography then, so we can get into the book? Yes, definitely. I'm looking forward to it. So, do you want to tell us about Bram Stoker's life? Yes. So his name is not Bram; it's actually Abraham Stoke. He was born on April eighth, eighteen forty-seven, in Clontarf, which is a suburb of Dublin in Ireland. Stoker was the third of seven children of Abraham, a civil servant, and Charlotte Stoker. Bram didn't start school until the age of seven, as he was bedridden until then with an undetermined illness. And he didn't suffer any further serious illness and was educated at a private school and then Trinity College Dublin, and he achieved a BA and an MA. Stoker developed an interest in the theater during his studies. He worked as a critic for the Dublin Evening Mail and attracted attention for the quality of his writing. He also began to write fiction, publishing Crystal Cup in 1872 and The Chain of Destiny in 1876. He also published a nonfiction book called The Duties of Clerks of Petty Sessions in Ireland. Yeah, sounds like an exciting read. Oh, yes. Yeah, Yeah. definitely probably just catapulted him to fame yeah i'm sure clerks the world over are still reading that book uh, in 1878 stoker was acquainted with oscar wilde who you may know i've heard of him right. yeah. do you yeah. have you heard of him um yeah. oscar wilde had been a suitor of florence balcom a well-known local beauty however she married stoker instead And Wilde was upset at her choice, but the acquaintanceship with Stoker survived, and he visited Wilde after his fall from grace. We should do an Oscar Wilde book. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Yeah. Explore more of him. The Stokers moved to London, where he served as acting and business manager at Lycum Theatre. Lyceum. 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 Excuse me. Yeah. Lyceum Theater, a position he attained through his friend Sir Henry Irving, one of the foremost actors of his time, the time. Stoker was well-traveled as a result of working with Irving, visiting the U.S., and twice being invited to the White House. Stoker visited Whitby in 1890, and this was said to be a source of inspiration for Dracula. He began writing Dracula in 1895 in Cruden Bay, Scotland, a place to which he took regular month-long holidays. Prior to writing the book, Stoker had met Armin Bambri, a Hungarian Jewish writer, and his dark tales on the Carpathian Mountains perhaps had an impact on Stoker's most famous creation. Okay, so shall we leave Bram Stoker's bio there and move on to the story of Dracula? Yes, uh, the story is not recounted through like a straightforward narrative it's made up of diary entries of 
various characters, letters from one character to another, telegrams, and even newspaper clippings. And the first part of the book is entirely comprised of Jonathan Harker's diary as he recounts his trip into Transylvania uh, and a nightmarish stay there. It begins with him as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young solicitor who has recently qualified, and he's been sent to Eastern Europe to help someone named Count Dracula finalise the purchase of a property back in London. He passes through Romania before making his way into Transylvania, and he's touched at how quaint and sweet all the isolated country folk are. <laughs> all these folks seem so concerned for his well-being when they figure out where he means to go, giving him good luck talismans, crossing themselves, praying for his life, <laughs> etc. Uh, and he yeah. sort of he thinks they're all so cute, yeah. and, um, also nice and friendly. Uh, eventually, he's handed off to a mysterious carriage driver in the Carpathian Mountains who drives him in circles and goes treasure hunting until they finally arrive at Castle Dracula in the early morning hours. The Count is an old man who is very hosp hospitable, although he insists on keeping Harker up all night, every night, so he can talk about business and practice his English. <laughs> um, so I've had a few students like that. Like as I'm reading this, this is the first thing that struck me now that I'm older and I've we're doing job that we do. I was just thinking like, oh, this brings back bad memories of just students who are <laughs> constantly like we practice English. You have to make sure you tell me every mistake. So yes. Yeah. Horrible never, flashbacks. I've never had one that doesn't let me sleep, though, I have to say. Yeah, that's true. Dracula also never eats, disappears all day long and has warned Jonathan against exploring the castle for his own safety. Harker goes exploring anyway, <laughs> and realises the castle is built on the edge of a cliff, and all the doors going outside are locked, so he's basically a prisoner there. He starts to think that all those silly country bumpkins back in Romania may have been onto something. He's like, this is weird. <laughs> Worst Airbnb ever. I don't think he would have given it a five-star rating. Um, he really thinks something's up when Count Dracula pops into his room while he's shaving and there's no reflection in the mirror. Does this fully convince him? Not really. But he's a lot more suspicious now, especially after he sees Dracula crawling along the side of the castle like a spider, which would freak. Mm. I mean, yeah, you'd start to wonder. He's looking out of, out of his window, isn't he? Or is he on a balcony, like looking over? And then he just sort of sees Dracula, like go out with a window and just cr crawl down the wall. Yeah. Like Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ever the Explorer, uh, Jonathan, runs into some mysterious sexy ladies who can materialize from dust and seem very eager to get to know him better. And Dracula suddenly comes to his rescue and tells the woman their turn with him will come. And he throws a bag on the floor with a kidnapped baby in it for them to do God knows what with. Then Dracula starts forcing Harker to write post-dated letters to reassure his employer and his fiance, Mina, that he's coming home and all is well, but he's actually still imprisoned. He breaks into Dracula's rooms because he's starting to get even more suspicious. Not convinced. He's mm. more and more suspicious. And he finds a load of coffins filled with dirt and finds the Count asleep in one of them, engorged with blood and young looking. And this is totally the last straw. He's like, something's wrong. Yeah, I want to go home. So believing his life will soon come to an end and overhearing the Count promising the sexy sisters that they can have him the next night, Harker realizes he must escape or die. Mm -hmm. A group of 
gypsies visit the castle. I don't think we're supposed to say gypsies anymore, are we? That's in the book. What can we say? Yeah, that's not that. I, th- I think we should leave it in there, but it's that's a word that's of its time, isn't it? And uh, these traveling folk bear away, bear away the coffins, presumably to be shipped somewhere. And Harker takes this opportunity to scale the castle wall in a slightly more precarious way than Dracula in order to attempt an escape before the night falls. He writes in his diary that he would rather meet his death at the bottom of the cliff than be in the hands of the monster women. And there his diary ends, fate unknown. Mm. And that's more or less the end of part one, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were you scared? Yeah, I think I was a little bit. It's um, I probably quite like me. I, I, th- I seem to like the beginnings of books quite a lot. I think this is probably my favorite part of the book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it is quite scary. I couldn't remember what happened to him, whether he lived or died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is quite scary. And the way that it builds up, I think it's quite sort of realistic, to be honest, that no, it's not realistic to meet this man and there's no reflection in the mirror, but his reactions are kind of like, there's no reflection. That's a bit strange. How can I logically uh, explain this? Yeah, yeah I, I can see yeah. what you mean. Yeah, I don't necessarily think, you know, if, if you see these things happening, they take a little while to process, I think. And you would, yeah, you'd be sort of trying to logically explain them. Like, oh, maybe I just, I, it was just a mistake I made or it was a trick of the eye or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, by the end, he knows that things are uh, askew. He's, yeah, he's accepted yeah. the supernatural nature of everything. And also, yeah. I think throughout the book, one thing that's pretty clear is that even though this is taking place a while ago it's still pretty obvious that what Bram Stoker is doing is trying to make it very clear that all these modern characters are living in the most modern of times so they are Mm. people of science and reason and the latest inventions and Dracula is someone living in the past he's like an ancient vampire Mm. so there's this divide between like him and then these all these other people who are more logical thinking so I think that ties into what you were saying yeah that's definitely true and I think as the reader I don't know if this is true of people reading at the time but we're very aware as I said of what and who Dracula is so Mm. we know we know a lot more than the character about what's happening and Mm -hmm. I imagine for like contemporary readers of the time that was possibly true as well I mean they knew they were reading a horror book yeah and they knew yeah. what vampires were and they, yeah, they yeah. it wasn't like they, this was the first time they'd ever heard of something like that. No. But um, yeah. And I will say that at the beginning of the book, the part when I was like 12 that I couldn't get past was when mm-hmm. he's in the carriage going up to the castle and there are wolves closing in on him and yeah. around the carriage and Dracula, who is the carriage driver, really. Mm-hmm he can command the wolves and command the weather and do all this stuff and makes, you know, pushes them back and everything. But Jonathan Harker like faints in the carriage or something like that. And that was when I was a little kid, I quit reading because I thought that was really scary. Yeah. And it's quite good writing, but I wasn't as scared as I was. And I just found myself laughing quite a bit (laughs) through the whole book, but mostly this part, I was like, ah, this isn't as, scary as i thought it was it's kind of silly yeah. and yeah yeah there's a lot of melodrama going on i think mm-hmm. all right with with all that behind us now are you ready to continue to part two yes yes more than ready very excited i'm okay. scared
Well, we go back in time now a couple of months and our story continues with Mina Murray and that's Jonathan Harker's lovely fiance. She is in Whitby visiting her friend Lucy, who is also very beautiful and popular, having received marriage proposals from three different men recently. I should say that this part is comprised from a lot of letters between Mina and Lucy. They're very, very good friends. Like, doesn't she get the three proposals all on the same day? Yes. Yeah. Um, and she's like, oh, I just don't know what to do. I'm so sad, but I'm so happy as well. Because she is a very nice person, Lucy, yeah, as well, yeah. beyond just being beautiful and, and popular. Yes. Um, she turned down Quincy Morris, who is a trigger-happy Texan cowboy transplant, which is a very random character to have in this story. But he's important. Like mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she turns down John Seward, who is a doctor, and he works in a London insane asylum. And he has a lot of his own problems with a particularly odd patient named Renfield. Um, we won't really talk about him much later, but, you know, uh, he is important to the story. Um, and we might mention him in uh, hindsight later. Or, yeah, uh, yeah. Reflections. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Lucy is now happily engaged to Arthur Holmwood, a.k.a. Lord Godalming. And the two women are having a lovely holiday exploring the seaside town of Whitby. A ship arrives in the harbor after a terrible storm and a great black dog is spotted around the town at night. The cargo from the ship, a number of wooden boxes, are given to a local solicitor to transport somewhere. Mm, Where do they go? What's in the boxes? Mm. Inconveniently, Lucy begins sleepwalking, even so far as to leave the house and going around by the abbey, uh, Whitby Abbey, which is quite famous, and Graveyard, which Mina manages as best as she can. But Mina is also growing concerned for Harker, as it's long gone past the date he promised to be home in his last letter, which we know was sent by Dracula while Harker was still imprisoned. When Mina receives word from Budapest that Harker is in hospital, there, she immediately leaves to care for him. Once there, she marries him immediately and Harker makes her swear to never look in the journal he kept while he was captive in Castle Dracula. Without Mina to watch her, Lucy's sleepwalking gets worse and her health deteriorates. Back in London, she's visited by her fiancé, Arthur, and her old suitor, Dr. Seward, who, concerned, calls on his old professor, Dr. Van Helsing from Amsterdam. Van Helsing seems to immediately know what the two little pinpricks on Lucy's neck mean, acute blood loss. They perform a blood transfusion on Lucy, uh, a lot of blood transfusions. <laughs> it's very repetitive, this part. Yeah, three or four, I think. Mm-hmm. First, Arthur gives his blood and Lucy gets better. Van Helsing places garlic and crucifixes around Lucy's room and windows, which are removed by her well-meaning mother. She's like, the room stinks. <laughs> yeah. gonna take him away so she can have fresh air. I open the window too, all night long for her. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, ah! Thanks, mom. The next day, Lucy is again very ill and drained of blood. Not coincidentally. They repeat the procedure again and again and again, but it's all in vain. By the time Lucy dies, she has been given blood by Arthur, Dr. Seward, Quincy Morris, and Van Helsing himself. Mm -hmm. After her funeral, there are reports of a woman walking around at night snatching children. Van Helsing reveals his long-held suspicions that Lucy has become a vampire and they must break in her tomb and kill her once more to release her soul. After stalking her and catching her biting a child, they manage to confine her to her tomb. Arthur drives a stake through her heart, which kills the vampire in Lucy. And then they cut off her head and stuff her mouth with garlic as an extra precaution because 
you can never be too careful. <laughs> I guess. Uh, no, not with the undead. I think a couple years ago when I read this again, I really liked this part because I thought it was so so cool that Van Helsing's like Arthur. You have to do it. You're yeah. her. You were her fiance. So you're going to be the one that frees her soul. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from evil. Apart from the bit in the castle at the beginning, I, I do really like this part as well. It's like the mish, they're starting to uncover the mystery, aren't they? Of, of what's mm-hmm. happening and what's going on and the kind of the unreality of it is becoming real too. Mm-hmm. Apart from Van Helsing, who kind of knows what's going on the whole time. Can you imagine people back in the 1800s reading this part? Well, <laughs> I mean, they do keep going, keep going to her coffin and opening it up, don't they? Like, oh, she's there. Oh, she's not there anymore. Oh, you go ahead, give her a kiss now. Give yeah, her a kiss. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. oh, maybe I don't know. It's it's pretty heavy though. That's part. Mina and Jonathan, um, recently married, return to London from Budapest, and he swears he sees Count Dracula in the street. So Mina's already broken her promise to Jonathan and read his secret diary and is starting to make links to his experience and Lucy's strange illness and death. And they are hooked up with Van Helsing by Dr. Seward. And after compiling all their journals and stories of the past few months, realize that Dracula has purchased several homes in the London area and intends to make England his new feeding ground. And that's the end of part two. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on this particular part? Thoughts on this particular part? I I thought this part was quite a bit slow actually Mm. because of how repetitive it is especially the part i think moving along with mina and lucy and oh she's sleepwalking oh and she's she's a bit ill but now she's better oh now she's ill again now she's better again and that just kind of ping pongs back and forth quite a lot and i get the reason why because they're trying to forge a link between these men and lucy and give Mm you know, so they can all give their blood to her. So they feel like they are compelled when the time comes to do something about her as a vampire. Yeah. So he's setting up that narrative and I get it, but it just seems like it takes forever. Yeah. Apart from the bit that I mentioned with the coffin and open air, I wasn't as keen on this part. It's very, very slow. Dracula's not, not really in it. I mean, I think in this summary, which you've written really well, it kind of makes it sound like he's there. All, I mean, he is there as kind of a presence, but you don't really, they don't really see him, do they? Any of the people like writing the diary, they just kind of see the bat outside and there's reports of the dog and Mina sees him like sort of attacking Lucy in the graveyard, but that's it. I think he's missing. And instead you just get these sort of, yeah, very repetitive accounts of Lucy looking ill, getting better. I did find it slightly mm-hmm. te- tedious, if I'm honest. And at the same time, you've got this, the stuff about Seward in the asylum. Yeah. So, so not For Seward, a bit, sorry, yeah. Ren- Renf- Renfield. Renfield. I mean. Yeah. And the thing with him is that he's meant to be somebody who Dracula has maybe singled out as a vulnerable person who mm-hmm. can give him access to the house next door. Is that right? Because a vampire can only be invited into places. So he needs yeah, somebody yeah. that he can kind of control who he can force to let him do things. And, yeah. and so Renfield is a very interesting character because you just see Dr. Seward making all these notes, like visited him today. He's eating flies again. Oh, he's collecting the flies. Oh, now he's collecting the spiders to, to, eat the flies oh now he's what does he get to eat the spiders 
Is it cat? No, it's birds, I think, isn't it? Yeah, he's feeding the spiders to the birds and now he's eating the birds. Like, thank yeah. God we didn't get him a cat like he wanted or he'd be eating <laughs> a cat right now. And it's because he's compelled by Dracula to take life and have life energy. So he's bloodthirsty, basically. Yeah, yeah. But he keeps going back and forth between the animals, doesn't he? It doesn't it doesn't really go anywhere, I don't think. No, it's, no. It's until until much later on in the book. Mm-hmm. No, you don't really make that many um, connections, I think, for a while. But I think also um, there's this approach of the text compiled from different sources mm. and it's a really interesting thing that not I didn't really think about it until later but it, everything is dated yeah and when some people like Renfield are starting to get a little bit more worked up Lucy gets better mm. and she maybe would be in Whitby at the time and then uh, there's a lot of things that go back and forth and it coincides with Dracula being in town and then Dracula being away and I think that's kind of what you're supposed to, if you're paying attention <laughs> better than yeah. we were, you're supposed to kind of get that like, oh, okay, this is all coinciding with Dracula moving around England and being yeah. in different places. So I get, I, I think there's a purpose to Renfield, obviously, but it's like I said, it's kind of slow and kind of cumbersome, I think, to make that link. So yes. yeah. yeah, yeah, not so keen on part two, not as much as part one. I think it's not as no. fun. No, it's not as scary either. No, except for the gnarly part in the middle, I think. All right, moving on to part three. So putting together all they know about Dracula from both personal experiences and superstitious lore, the men set out on a hunt for him, and in particular, the coffins he brought from Transylvania, which serve as a safe hiding place for him to sleep during the day. One by one, they locate and gain entrance to the houses he has purchased, and upon finding his coffins purified of soil in them, with sacramental bread wafers, rendering them holy and useless to Dracula. Meanwhile, Mina is getting really lethargic and low, and sleeps a lot. But she's an emotional woman, and this is all really stressing her out. (laughs) Or so they think, until they walk in on Dracula, forcing her to drink blood from a wound in his chest one night, and he reveals that he's broken into her bedroom and bitten her at least three times before this. He gets away, but Mina's fate is clear. She's going to become a vampire too, either gradually over time, or should she somehow die before Dracula is found and destroyed. Which is horrible, the way that they find her. And I um, had totally forgotten that that happened in Mm. the book. So I thought that was horrible, that scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just burst in the room and uh, it's all all going on. Blood going down her nightgown and uh, creepy. So anyway, Dracula knows the jig is up in London and he flees back to Transylvania in his last wooden coffin by way of a ship. And the group pursue him overland through Eastern Europe. Mina realizes that through hypnosis, she can tap into this weird child maker relationship she now has with Dracula, and they use this to track his whereabouts along seas and rivers to pinpoint his location. The team splits up. So Harker and Arthur, Harker and Arthur, (laughs) sorry, pursue Dracula's coffin along the river. Dr. Seward and Quincy Morris follow them overland should he attempt to escape them. And Van Helsing takes Mina directly to his castle to slay the brides of Dracula. So Mina begins to sleep during the day, stops eating, 
is harder to hypnotize and Van Helsing sometimes wakes up to find her watching him, which starts to get on on his nerves a little bit. Mm. But Mina is very helpful in knowing where to locate Dracula's castle and in its wake during a blizzard, they are discovered by the three vampire women. The only thing that saves them is a circle of crushed sacramental bread, which prevents the women from harming them. And they wait there until daybreak and the women depart. Van Helsing, using Jonathan Harker's journal as a guide, immediately breaks into the castle, locates the chapel and finds the tombs of the three brides of Dracula as each lay in a deep sleep. Nearly too beautiful to kill. But the thought of Mina sets his resolve and as he stakes each woman, their corpses turn to dust. Before he leaves, he sterilizes the empty tomb of Dracula, leaving him with no more safe places to sleep. The group converges with the band of traveling folk. Mm -hmm. To take away the other word that I've written a few times. Mm -hmm. Um, They are transporting Dracula in his coffin and in an intense scene that takes place just as the sun is going down, a fight breaks out amongst the men with only moments to spare before Dracula wakes up. The men and Mina subdue the travelers with guns and Jonathan Harker and Quincy Morris rip the lid off the coffin. And there lay Dracula, eyes red with evil and smiling in triumph as his victory is nigh. Until Harker severs his head as Quincy stakes him through the heart and he is instantaneously disintegrated. But not before Mina glimpses a look of peace across his face. As Quincy Morris, who I should say is the American who helped save the day, uh, he dies, but he points out that Mina is now free of her curse. A note from Jonathan Harker reveals that seven years on, the group can look back on their ordeal without despair, as Dr. Seward and Arthur are now happily married <laughs> to other people. They're not married to each other. I should say <laughs> that's poorly written. That They're would be both a happily twist. married to different ladies, I think. Um, that would be a twist. Mina and Jonathan have a son, and Ben Helsing is still a dear family friend who reminds them often that their son will grow up knowing how brave, gallant, and loved his mother is. And that is the end of Dracula. It is. So I know we've covered this a little bit, but what are your thoughts in general on the book? Yeah, it's a silly, it's silly. No, that's what I think. (laughs) Yeah. If I'm, if I'm really, really honest, I think it's not as scary as I thought it it was. There are definitely scary points Mm -hmm. to it, but I think I, um, reading it with a more contemporary eye and being older than I, than I was the last time, last couple times I've read it. It's, it's nowhere near as um, not good because it is a good book, but this um, major, amazing uh, piece of literature, I kind of used to think it was, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, definitely. It's still yeah. really good, but um, it, I, I think it may have dropped in, in my esteem slightly, but um, I'll always love it. It'll always be a favorite anyway. Okay. So it, it hasn't, you don't regret reading it for this third time? No, no, not at all. It's, it's, yeah, it's nice to, you know, have books that you read again and again. And this is definitely just a book that has been that for me. And yeah, every, I like every time I read it, I think I take something different away from it. And yeah, that's always a nice thing about coming back to things, isn't it? Like films or books, there's always something that you've missed the other Mm -hmm. times. Yeah. Did you have a favorite character? Uh, Probably Jonathan Harker, I think, (laughs) because 
one of my issues with the book is once all the kind of gang kind of form, I don't know if the characters are, are all that well developed and they all no. kind of run, run into each other a little bit. And it's almost like there's too many of them mm-hmm. um, and it switches back across perspective. So there's none of them that I, I dislike, but because you meet him first and he's a bit of a lovable idiot, isn't he? I mean, that's probably the reason that uh, Francis Ford Coppola picked Keanu Reeves. <laughs> to play him in the film that he's someone who can play someone that you you really like but is a bit of a I don't know he's a, a bit of a buffoon it's funny because who is it is it Seward who meets Jonathan Harker or somebody mm-hmm. meets him and writes in his diary like he is unusually clever and I yeah. was laughing thinking like the whole first part there are these people who are literally like saying oh my god the devil you're going to the devil and he's like oh how sweet they're <laughs> telling me about their culture how cute and it's just funny because yeah. he's i don't know you don't get the idea that he's particularly smart no he's not that perceptive is he i i like the bit where he go they're trying to track down dracula's property in london and he thinks he's found a house that dracula's bought so he goes to the estate agent and he basically says so Who's bought that house on the top of the hill? And the estate agent's, agent's like, no, well, I, I can't, can't tell you that. I can't tell you. And he's like, what an insufferable prig this man was. And I, was <laughs> I was sort of imagining going into like a, a Bridgeford's or an estate agent here and going, yeah. who's bought the big house at the end of the road? And they'd, they'd give you the same answer. Like, well, we can't tell you that. It's private. Yeah. So, But then obviously he just flashes the name Lord Goldarming and uh, they immediately become a, a lot more obsequious. Mm. And mm-hmm. uh, they find out very quickly that it's Dracula that's bought the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has... Something that I've missed, is it an in- entirely a coincidence that Jonathan Harker goes to the castle at the beginning and then a friend of his wife-to-be is the first victim of Dracula in England? Or is, Dra- is Dracula, like, targeting them? Because if not, it's a massive coincidence that that happens. Mm. I, I'm not really sure. I know he knows that Jonathan Harker has a fiancé because in the first part, um, Jonathan tries to write her a letter in shorthand to mm. explain his situation and Dracula can't read it and rips it up because he's checking all Jonathan's correspondence before he sends out to make sure he's writing what he told him to write. Yeah. So he knows that he's getting married and knows things like that. But I, I don't know. I think the idea with Lucy, I think Bram Stoker is trying to write her as she's just this incredibly beautiful young woman. She's not 20 yet, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of Dracula's type, basically, if he was going (laughs) to have a time. So I think that's more what it was. I think it is kind of a coincidence. So yeah, but it just so happens to be his victim back in Transylvania's uh, fiance's best friend. Is it also a coincidence then that another suture of Lucy's is Dr. Seward and one of the patients in his insane asylum is the person that Dracula is kind of manipulating from the outside. Yeah, I think that's coincidence. Uh, and is it another coincidence that Dracula <laughs> buys the house next door to the asylum as well? I don't know if that's yeah. planned or unplanned. It could be yeah. that he planned that because he wanted to be close to Renfield in some way. Or he needed to be close to crazies, that people who would be easily, you know, easily suggestible people. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't know, but yeah, you're right. There's a ton of coincidence in this. Yeah, and yeah, and it's just lucky that 
Dr. Seward's like old professor seems to know a lot about vampires. Yeah, Van Helsing's oh. great. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, the, what I, the funny thing that I like is that he's always like, oh, all right, I have to go back to Amsterdam. I'm going to go tonight. I'll be back tomorrow afternoon from Amsterdam. And it's like, how close is Amsterdam? It can't be that. I, this is yeah. like, what year is this? It's the late 19th century, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so, you know, that, I don't, there's no plane to take you to Amsterdam and back in like an afternoon. So it's uh, oh. it's a bit ridiculous, I think, that all this, you know, he seems to be very, um, for an old man, he can travel pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, he's gone and he's back. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I just sort of picture him getting on a Ryanair flight. <laughs> Jet setting all over Europe to do what he needs to do. Um, one thing that i thought was a bit because you said characters were underdeveloped and stuff is Mm. that what struck me is that i never really thought about before is that you know you're right and that there's too many of them Mm. it almost seems like there's just so many characters that are kind of an afterthought and quincy the american he's Mm. one of them who isn't really in it all that much and just seems to kind of be there as a sort of support and then he ends up being really important at the end and with jonathan harker saving the day he's he slays dracula he stakes him through the heart yeah yeah, and you would think that that honor would go to arthur arthur and jonathan together as they were the two men who were have the most invested in in this because it was lucy arthur's fiance Mm -hmm. who was dracula's victim and then mina as well was his potential victim i guess and so i thought that was a strange choice and i almost wonder if bram stoker just was like oh, i didn't put him in it that much possibly well, yeah. i'll have him be the one of the victors at the end but he does die too so he does yeah he's um he's supposed to be the man of action isn't he quincy i think yeah but he and... doesn't really do that it's more van helsing and arthur and john seward and the rest of the book who are more like the men of action and this guy quincy is just like shooting his gun (laughs) and he sees a bat and he shoots his gun and almost kills everybody and it's like sorry after all this talk of bats and stuff i'm just right scared of everything that taps on the window i mean where's he from he's from texas okay there you go a very rich (laughs) person from texas (laughs) not that Mm. much has changed i suppose Oh, I've I've never been to Texas. I'm probably being a little bit unfair. Yeah, sorry, anyone from Texas. Yeah. We offend. We say sorry every episode to people. But... Yeah, we should start offending some people from from where we're from. I think. Well, to, I'm. I will so. say sorry to any traveling folk I may have offended in the earlier parts. Uh... Well, I think using <laughs> I think using that word word in this narrative is fine because that's the word in the book. But I I think as people talking about this story now we have to be careful because that kind of word is a is like a slur isn't it i, I don't know um, it is yeah it comes from I, th- I believe the word gypsy kind of comes from like egyptian or something um, so you're basically saying are oh, these traveling folk these, these egyptians but you don't mean people mm, from egypt you just mean foreigners so I, I think that's where it comes from i might be wrong about that but i, I believe that's true. can you say bohemians uh yes because that's in old books when they talk about people from bohemia or like and they're like traveling people i don't i've never i don't think i've ever heard bohemian used oh that's in like willa cather writes that okay i thought i 
thought a bohemian was like an intellectual that's that spends their life yeah yeah yeah. Like... but bohemia used to be a place yes yeah i know that but i thought that... people from bohemia okay oh. well that's another another um if we ever do my antonia or something we'll talk mm-hmm. about that and we'll work it out but yeah yeah we'll, we'll solve that problem for everybody um do you want to finish the, the end of his bio is not that long but would you like to finish it Yes, yeah, so this is the rest of Bram Stoker's life. After Dracula. <laughs> after Dracula. So after suffering a number of strokes, uh, Stoker died on the 20th of April, 1912, possibly due to overwork or syphilis or a hmm. combination of both. Um, his death certificate reports the cause to be locomotor ataxia, six months, which is thought perhaps to be a reference to syphilis. You know, that's the that was the end of his life. Well, he had fun. Well, yeah, I mean, he wrote one of the most (laughs) well-known books and created one of the most famous characters in in all of literature. So, Mm -hmm. you know, kudos to him. Yeah. Nice. I'm glad he was he worked hard. Mm -hmm. If he died due to overwork, then um, it was not in vain. I suppose. No, I think that means more his work in the theater rather than ah, writing. I think. Well, I don't know anything he did in the theater. No, no. That sucks. You died of overwork and nobody knows anything about that. You're only remembered uh, for the, the one thing. I think it tells you that perhaps the things that you're remembered for are not the things that you spend most of your time doing. Mm, it's very philosophical. Mm. Yeah. Well, can I ask you a question before we move on to the last quote? Yes, go ahead. Yes. Well, if vampires were real, Mm. Lestat style Mm -hmm. and rights vampires, all that, would you like to be bitten and turned into one? Uh, Definitely. Yes. I know. Right. (laughs) Like, I mean, you if it's like underworld and everyone's like super strong and you can live forever and you can, you have all this, like Im- your immortal. So you just have all the time in the world to learn stuff. Yep. Then I think it would be pretty cool. I think so. Aside I... from the having to bite people. And yeah. People and, to, and, food. I live only at nighttime that, you know, I, I quite like the daylight. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the thing that I, I liked in this book was, you know, when we think of vampires, we just think of them turning into bats. And he does a fair bit of that in the book, but he's also, he can turn into like mist and kind of slip between doorways. Mm. Uh, he's the dog as well. So, and he, he changes... walks around it in the daytime too. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? He yeah, just has he... no power. He's like a person. Yeah. yeah, he's just a man, isn't he? Because doesn't, yeah, Jonathan Harker like spots him in London. Is that during the daytime? When yeah. He sees yeah, 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 yeah. It's in the, in the daytime. And when they break into one of his houses to sterilize some of the coffins, Dracula comes home or something and he escapes out the back. Yeah. And then they right. can't find yeah. him. He like runs, yeah. <laughs> runs through the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, he runs off into his stables, doesn't he? And yeah. disappears. Yeah. That makes it even cooler. So, yeah, my answer is a strong, affirmative yes. I would cool. love to be a vampire. I don't really want to drink blood. If, if there's any way I could get out of that, then that, that would be oh, I think you but... wouldn't mind. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, nice. Good true. answer. Okay. I have a slightly more woke question for you. Than that. Okay. So, the, did you have any thoughts on the depiction of the role of women in the book? I think it's a book. It's very of its time. And you can tell a man wrote it. 
because mm-hmm. Mina's very much like, oh, the men, they're working so hard. Aren't women just so, so lovely, like to have men who will, who will be brave for us and take care of us. And, oh, we're so lucky. You know, the men are the ones being the brave ones and doing all the hard work. So it's, I yeah. think, very traditional roles of like men and women that kind of apply in this book. Mm. Um, so that, that's the only thing, but Mina does come out very, it's a very major, strong character in this book anyway, like they wouldn't have solved any of the mysteries and been able to do anything that they did without Mina. Oh, and she's, she's very good at memorizing train timetables, isn't she? When she's anyone says smart. She... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he wrote her to be a very intelligent person. Yeah. So it's not like, it's like, oh, I'm a stupid woman and I don't know anything. Like she, she had some, you know, things going on. Yeah. I just like it when they say things like, when's the next train to London? She goes, 10.15 in the morning. And they go, oh. How do you know? She goes, I took the time to memorize the train timetable for the next day. And they're like, wow, you're amazing. You've saved us. (laughs) So I think it's like the men are not, like women are smarter, but more emotional while the men are more brutish and like all Mm -hmm. like action, but not very, they're kind of dumb. Yeah, they sort of, like you have (laughs) Arthur, like he's obviously very, very, affected by his fiance's death but he you get the sense he's controlling his emotions a lot so he still knows that this is the right thing to do and he can still pull back the coffin of his of the woman he loves just to check whether she's in it or not because he knows you know we have to do this and he's not going to let any emotional investment he has in her stop him from doing the right thing um, which I don't know how realistic that is (laughs) I don't know it said that in the book that he's repulsed as soon as he sees her as a vampire because you can just tell that it's not her anymore that it's all her traces of like innocence and loveliness are gone and it's replaced Mm -hmm. by someone very beautiful because vampire women are very Mm -hmm. seductive and beautiful but it wasn't what Lucy was like she was very beautiful but in a more innocent girlish way yeah. And um, so seeing that made him more resolved to do what he did. And I think they do pay for how the characters, not Stoker, they pay for how they sort of see women because they decide at one point, okay, we're just going to stop telling Mina stuff. We're just going to keep her out of the loop because she's a woman and it's best that she doesn't yeah. know these things. And then they talk about, then I think Van Helsing tells them, okay, he's a vampire. He can become mist. And then the next thing, you know, Mina's like having these dreams about a mist, like coming in her room and like swirling around her. And she's like, she doesn't know what it is, but if they had told her, then she would know that that was Dracula and that might have, um, and she then says, I can't worry Jonathan with my dreams at the moment, but if they sort of communicated a bit more, Mm -hmm. then perhaps they would have, she wouldn't have been attacked. Maybe. Yeah, things wouldn't have, have progressed to, to the point where they where yeah. she had was going to become a vampire, essentially. Yeah. Like she may have been bitten the one time mm. and then that could have stopped it. So, yeah, they do pay for that. You're right. So yeah. they they learn to include her in things, yes. you know, and then yeah. she becomes incredibly valuable to them by the end. Yeah, that is true. All right. Well, would you like to finish off with a, an ending quote from uh, Jonathan Harker's journal? I love this quote. I think this is one of, well, both of ours really favorite part of the novel. So this is quite early on. This is Jonathan Harker. He's traveling into Transylvania and people are acting a little bit weirdly around him. And these are his um, recollections of that. Here we go. 
When I got on the coach, the driver had not taken his seat, and I saw him talking with the landlady. They were evidently talking of me, for every now and then they looked at me, and some of the people who were sitting on the bench outside the door, which they call by a name meaning word bearer, came and listened, and then looked at me, most of them pityingly. I could hear a lot of words, often repeated, queer words, for there were many nationalities in the crowd. So I quietly got my polygot dictionary from my bag and looked them out. I must say they were not cheering to me, for amongst them were Ordog, dog, Satan, Pockle, Hell, Stregoika, Witch, Vrolok, and Vukolslak, both of them which mean the same thing, one being Slovak and the other Serbian, for something that is either werewolf or vampire. Memo. I must ask the Counts about these superstitions. When we started, the crowd round the indoor, which had by this time swelled to a considerable size, all made the sign of the cross and pointed two fingers towards me. With some difficulty, I got a fellow passenger to tell me what they meant. He would not answer at first, but on learning that I was English, he explained that it was a charm or guard against the evil eye. This was not very pleasant for me, just starting for an unknown place to meet an unknown man. But everyone seemed so kind-hearted and so sorrowful and so sympathetic that I could not but be touched. I shall never forget the last glimpse which I had of the inn-yard and its crowd of picturesque figures, all crossing themselves as they stood around the wide archway, with its background of rich foliage of oleander and orange trees in green tubs clustered in the centre of the yard. That's hilarious. It is, yeah. <laughs> That was really well read. Thank you for doing that. You're welcome. Welcome. Okay, we should probably uh, finish up there, shouldn't we? Wish uh, a happy Halloween and goodbye to our lovely listeners. What do you say? Yes, happy Halloween. Thank you for listening. And we hope to be with you again soon with another episode. Yeah, very much so. I'm As ever, I'm looking forward to that. I say that a lot, but it's true. Yeah, me too. All right, it's goodbye from me. And it's... Uh, Adios from me.